On the next episode of Fathers Who Bother, I speak with novelist, DJ, and cultural critic Adam Mansback about his New York Times bestselling book, Go the Fuck to Sleep, raising his three girls, cultivating their music aspirations, and so much more. All right. Welcome to Fathers Who Bother, a podcast for men who are dad as we want to be. My next guest is a novelist, screenwriter, cultural critic, and humorist. He's the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Go the Fuck to Sleep, which has been translated into 40 languages, named Time Magazine's 2011 Thing of the Year, and sold over 3 million copies worldwide. So he's triple platinum in the streets, people. The two sequels, You Have to Fucking Eat, and fuck, now there are two of you are also New York Times bestsellers. The audiobooks narrated by Samuel L. Jackson, which is amazing. Brian Cranston and Larry David have been downloaded more than a million times. Additionally, he is a hip hop head graduating from Columbia University and founding editor of the 1990s hip hop journal Elementary and hosts his own father figures radio show. So today we're going to talk about his favorite job as a girl dad. Please welcome Adam Mansback. What's going on? How you doing? I'm good, man. It's funny. Nobody has mentioned elementary in an intro of me in a good 20 years, probably. So I'm like, wow. <laughs> it's funny. I, I had you. I was yeah. gonna tease you about it. I was like, I looked at the bio, I was like, yo, where's all the hip hop shit, son? You got yeah. all movies, you got mo writing movies about Barack Obama, which is dope. It's all fly, but I'm just like, where's but the DJing? Where's the... <laughs> right. Yeah, it's not the same as uh, trooping around Manhattan with a backpack full of magazines <laughs> going from newsstand to newsstand, arguing with motherfuckers about whether they owe me $7 for the two copies they sold. Nothing can replace that. <laughs> Yo, that analog error cannot be replaced. So I could, I, I, I felt like I would be remiss if, if I didn't mention that and let people understand just how deep and rich your hip hop history, hip hop journalism history goes. Um, so I had, I had to put that in there. But for people yeah. who who are may not, who may be listening to this, like, wait, what's he talking about? Give them the quick, the quick rundown of of element, elementary. Elementary was a, we build it as a hip hop journal, as the world's first and probably only hip hop journal. Mm -hmm. um, I started it in 1995 when I was a college student, as you said, at Columbia. It kind of, you know, I was a student at Columbia, but it came out of a class at NYU that Trisha Rose was teaching that I would go down from Columbia to NYU to audit and sit in the front row of twice a week. Trisha was a friend of mine. She was then dating and is now married to a really good old friend of mine who, uh, a guy by the name of Andre Willis, who was like my mentor in high school, um, put me onto a lot of stuff. So Trisha was like, yeah, come sit in. And this class was sort of a, a mecca and a destination because it was so mind blowing that somebody was teaching a hip hop class at NYU mm -hmm. in 1995. So I was in the front row every day with my man, Alan Kett, who at the time was about to drop the first issue of Stress Magazine. Yes. Um, and, you know, all these other incredible people were in the class, too. Uh, Saya, who was about to put out a record on Fondalum. Um, my man, Martin Perna, who would found Antibalas Afrobeat Orchestra, you know, in the next couple of years. Yes. Um, but, you know, elementary came out of this conviction I had that there were all of these incredible, wide-ranging, intellectually rigorous conversations about hip-hop that were happening 
in person in my life, everywhere I went, everybody I talked to, but they weren't really making it into print. Like the the dialogue, the conversation on hip hop was still um, surface level in print. And when it was in depth, it was like these binaries of overzealous defenses against unreasonable attacks. It was like hip hop was still being forced to defend its right to exist, right? It was like, you know, is it an art? And I was like, you know, fuck, who gives a shit what, if you don't think it's an art, go fuck yourself. Let's assume that it is. And then let's start building alliances with other kinds of artists, other kinds of thinkers. So elementary was an attempt to deepen the discourse and put thinkers within hip hop in dialogue with sort of interesting and supportive voices outside. So like we did stuff like enormous unwieldy roundtables with 20 people, you know, that would that would put people like OC and Bahamadia at a table with Greg Tate and Trisha Rose and Sasha Jenkins. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we also did a lot of like, yeah, sort of academic crossover stuff. Um, one of my favorite interviews I did was actually about fatherhood. It was uh, Professor Bob O'Mealy, who yes. ran the Jazz uh, Institute of Columbia in conversation with the Jungle Brothers right. about artistry and fatherhood. Um, it's funny, I was just at my parents' house over the summer and I brought back a stack of the second issue of Elementary because it's like in a box in their attic. And I was like, oh shit, like this is John Caramonica's first published work. Wow. You know, like this is, um, you know, we, we, we did a lot of stuff. And um, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was 19 <laughs> years old. What the fuck business do I have starting a magazine, you know? But so Ket, when I had this idea, Ket was like, I'll publish the magazine. Like I'm already publishing stress. Let me double down and make this a publishing empire. So yeah. I was like, okay. So Ket was my co-publisher. I was the editor in chief. I had a staff, but you know, we were just like scrambling and young finance. I was, I was largely financing elementary by like throwing parties, mm-hmm. you know? Um, all right. <laughs> it, it was on newsstands. It was a commercial venture, but I also somehow gamed my school into letting it be a student activity so I could get student activity money. Um, because my girl, Adrian Marie Brown, who's now, you know, like a, a leading voice out here was on like the student activities board. And she was like my conduit to getting funding for elementary. And, you know, we, we, I remember like forging mad receipts to turn into Columbia so we could get money. It was, it was an adventure, man. Let me but tell I mean, you, you're not you know, alone in that. Cause I don't know if you know, um, Kamani Rogers went to Wesleyan with me hmm. and he had off the top at Wesleyan, another hip, uh, you know, underground student run hip hop mag. And he had that as a, as a class. Yeah. At we were all, we were all running that hustle in the nineties. So trust yeah. me. Yeah. yeah. These are the hustles. And, and, you know, and like, I'd throw these parties at a, my, my, um, my art director, Ricardo Cortez, who went on to illustrate go the fuck to sleep many years later and who I knew even before Columbia. Cause we grew up in the same town and he was like in a rap group at the other high school. And I was in the rap group at the one, you know, like um, he lived in this, in this, like what had once been a fraternity house on the Columbia campus. And it had kind of been like taken over by a bunch of like artists and, and weirdos and druggies. Um, but it was still in name of fraternity, but it was a co-ed fraternity. It was all a scam for them to have a house, but I used to throw these parties at their house Right. So it'd be like, the, you know, be like a fundraiser for elementary and it'd be like a bunch of college kids, but it would also be like, you know, like Nicodemus from Giant Step would be spinning 
and phase two would be posted up in the corner. You know what I mean? Like it was, and and like rock steady cats would be break dancing and bomb five would be like tagging up the bathroom. It was like wild times. It was a really interesting moment in New York. You know, wouldn't trade, wouldn't trade it for the world. Wouldn't trade it for yeah. the world. Now I was going to ask you about that panel. Cause I said, what would make you do a fatherhood panel with the jungle brothers in the nineties? So yeah. what inspired that particular, because you clearly, you weren't a dad then, I'm assuming. I was not. No, okay. I was not. So, um, so I have to ask. I know anyway, yeah. I've had, um, some, I've had some folks who were dads from, from damn near 18. So I, yeah, yeah, I, have to, I have to be clear, but what yeah. inspired that topic at that time and with that group? Well, um, Andre Willis, who I mentioned before, mm-hmm had just published an anthology of writings about fatherhood, Professor O'Mealy had an essay in it. Um, And the Jungle Brothers in, this was like 96, I think, Mm -hmm. um, Raw Deluxe era Jungle Brothers, Mm -hmm. they were fathers and they were rhyming about it. They had a lyric, I think Africa had had a rhyme, something like, I rock the mic, hold the mic with the hand that rocks the cradle. They weren't like explicitly spending a lot of time rhyming about fatherhood, but it was clear from the music they were fathers. And this seemed like an interesting point of connection. Also because the Jungle Brothers, more so than a lot of groups, made explicit the kind of lineage in which they sat. Like they were fathers at this point themselves, young fathers, but they were also uh, the, you know, like Africa was called Africa Baby Bam. He was positioning himself as a son of Bambata. you know, Sammy B's uncle was Red Alert. Everybody knew that. Everybody knew that's where he got his record collection. So it just seemed like an interesting way in. And in that era, what I was looking to do was um, just kind of dislocate the standard hip hop journalism tropes and come at it a different way, you know? Yeah. So fatherhood was just a different way in that might lead to a different kind of discussion as opposed to like opening up some magazine and being like, I'm smoking blunts in a van with Cypress Hill. And you're like, are you, are you even a journalist or? Right. Right. Yeah. We just try to do some different things. You remember any of that conversation? I'm really curious is what, what yeah, I actually, I actually like went through the magazine recently because I came up on this little stack. Um, Yeah. There's some really interesting moments in there. Um, What I remember is first of all, I just, it was, it was, it was just a lovely experience being in that room because I got to watch O'Mealy, who was who was and is like this very kind of smooth, dapper, older jazz guy who used to walk around campus in, you know, fedoras and stuff um, every time. And, and I was like 20 trying to rock fedoras and me and him would always <laughs> see each other and be like, man, I want that hat. Nah, bro, I want that hat. You know, um, it sounds funny now because we take for granted that hip hop has kind of earned its place in the firmament of, you know, arts. But back then, there was something really special just about seeing somebody like O'Mealy um, sit down and build with the Jungle Brothers and see the mutual respect and see how they immediately were able to take this conversation a bunch of places. Um, that was still rare back then. Like there, there was still not a lot of academic respect for hip hop. Hip hop was in turn skeptical of the academy. Nobody was talking across the, the fence. So it was really dope just to see them build and to be a part of it. Um, you know, for me, that conversation also was like very emotional because more than more than almost any other group, the Jungle Brothers 
were a group I really grew up on. Straight Up the Jungle to me is a top 10 album. Forces of Nature is way up there too. Um, and not only had I grown up with their music, but like I had begun listening to it at such a young age that it really also like affected my growth in a way. So I remember there was a moment in the conversation when Mike G was, we were kind of talking about the lyrics they wrote, the songs they made, particularly around women and relationships and how they might reflect on some of the things they said a little bit further down the line now that they were older, now that they were fathers. And you know, they, they were a group that never said anything out of pocket really. They were not a misogynistic group. They weren't pushing those boundaries, but they were sexy. They had sexy songs. And Mike was talking about that. He was talking about songs like Behind the Bush and even Jim Browski. And there was a moment yeah. where he was kind of like, he was kind of like reaching for a lyric in his mind. He was trying to remember what he said. Mm -hmm. And I remembered it before he did. Because <laughs> like, it probably meant more to me than it meant right, to him. Right, and right, I remember right. that. And he was like, oh, <laughs> that was really interesting. Um, there was a moment when, when Bob O'Mealy was recounting how his father, who was West Indian, used to take him to the barber shop. And he would see a different side of his dad in that context, right? At home, his dad was very like circumspect and 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 well-mannered. But in the barbershop, he would talk shit with his friends and maybe, you know, delve into some patois. And Bob was saying, you know, this was as much of a teaching, as much of a learning experience as anything else my father taught me, because he taught me that there are times and places where this kind of language and this kind of a vibe is appropriate not over here necessarily but very much over here and he wouldn't say shit to me mm. i would hear him curse i never heard him curse at home mm. and he would just maybe throw me a wink and keep going and i knew that my job was to just kind of sit there and see what this type of masculinity and this type of space felt like you know so i remember that um I remember taking a bunch of group photos that somehow got lost and I've never gotten my hands on them, which, you know, this is, again, this is the 90s. We're probably doing it on like a fucking disposable camera. Polaroid, <laughs> you know? if you're lucky. Yeah. Kodak, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but um, yeah, I, I, that, was, that was like, it was also one of, the, one of the moments where, and this, as you know, is not always the case, you know, I was very young and a lot of the people that we were interviewing and approaching, you know, these were like my my idols, people I'd grown up listening to. 95% of the time, they were very disappointing when you actually met them. And the Jungle <laughs> Brothers were... <laughs> You're like, wow, maybe I shouldn't be basing my life's philosophy on the shit that J. Rue says. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like... I just, you know, like he's I'm laughing because I'm agreeing with you. I mean, I yeah. remember the ninth wonder told me in an interview, he's like, never meet your heroes because your heroes yeah. let you down. And yeah. a lot of times you meet dudes like, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. But like the Jungle Brothers, at least to me at that time, were, were who I wanted them to be, who I kind of hoped they would be. They were that cool. They yeah. were really reflective and smart. Um, the group dynamic between them was very interesting to watch. I remember Af got there late mm -hmm. and the vibe definitely changed when he, he was very much the group leader and you could kind of see that in action. It was, yeah, it was all really, it was all really interesting. It was one of my better experiences in um, my short lived tenure editing elementary. <laughs> no, that's dope. Um, so let's fast forward a little bit now a lot to recent times. 
and now you are settled into your career and you find out that you are going to be a dad. Tell me about the time you found out. How, how many lovely young ladies are you fathering right now? Um, I have three daughters, mm -hmm. like a fucking farmer in a joke. <laughs> so um, so yeah. your first so daughter number one, tell me about when you found out you were having daughter number one. Daughter number one. Okay, let's see. She's 13 now. Nice. Um, so yeah, this is kind of ancient history. Um, her mother and I, mm -hmm. we are not together anymore, but um, we, we were definitely like trying to have a baby. Mm -hmm. um, my older cousin had recently had his first son. And for the first time, I was spending a lot of time with a little kid. With, a, with I think he was probably, you know, shit. By the time my daughter was born, he was a little older. But like, I would go over there. I was living in Berkeley. They were in San Francisco. I was there like every week hanging out with little Victor and then his little brother Henry and realizing like yo like I like kids these kids are fresher than most adults I know they're funnier they're more and you know you know so like something had changed in me I was about 31 mm. um and I think I found out that I was having a kid over the summer uh Vivian's mother is Swedish and we were in Stockholm mm -hmm. where we often went in the summer to see her family mm -hmm. And yeah, she came out and told me and I was, uh, I was, I was sort of in a little bit of disbelief. I mean, it was something I wanted. It was something we had sort of planned to do. Um, but the fact that it was actually, and, and it's not like we had been like trying extensively, like it, you know, it, it probably took us a couple months for her to get pregnant, but like, still it was like, holy shit. Um, this, uh, the uh, life is really about to change. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, and you know, there had not been a girl born in my family since my mother. There were eight, my mother was born, this is my, my mother's side of the family, there were eight straight boys. Mm -hmm. So when I found out I was having a girl, that was very exciting. I really wanted a girl. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I continue to be- <laughs> <laughs> A reliable source of girls. Reliable source of girls, yeah. Oh man, so. As much I, I I love the, the, that age because my daughter's twelve, so I'm I'm with you on that age group. They're so much fun, they're so smart, and these and they're coming into their own at that age. My my first my oldest, my son, he's he's gonna be nineteen soon, but the girls, the twelve and thirteen year old girls, are special. Yeah. Um, what do you remember about her coming into her age, and how did you re and because you were quite frankly a little older than most dads you know, 31, you know, you're, you're experienced, you don't have the anxiety of a 25 year old or a 20 year old, you know, what was that like for you? Um, shepherding this young lady into, into life? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I was, I was certainly older than some, I was still, I think among my friend, among my same age friend group, like mm -hmm. one of the first to have kids. Most of my people had kids a little later. Um, I was a little more settled in my career. Like I was making a living as a writer, mm -hmm. but it was not necessarily a secure living. It was not, you know, there's, I mean, there's a lot of instability obviously in being an artist for a living. You, yeah. as, as well as things might be going, unless they're, unless you reach a certain echelon, there's still the fear that it could all collapse. So um, I definitely remember 
feeling like, okay, I got to hustle harder. I got to like try to set myself up, set this family up. Um, you know, at the time I was really just writing literary fiction, which, you know, here's a real revelation for your listeners. Literary fiction does not really uh, <laughs> guarantee you a, cush, a cushy living. Um, Great. So, you know, I had, I think there was some sense like, okay, well, I got to like figure some shit out. I got to diversify this. I got to like step up my speaking gigs and my, I got to find some other avenues and other income streams if I can. There was that. Um, but, you know, on a, on a, on a sort of purer and, and, and more basic level, I really did start thinking a lot about the kind of father I wanted to be, the kind of relationship I wanted to have with my kid, um, the things that I'd seen done well and done poorly around me, the models I had or didn't have, both of fathers and of kind of relationships and family structures, you know. Um, my cousin was a model for me. He was really, really attentive to and curious about and engaged with everything his kids were doing. Um, and I thought that was great. Um, I thought about the sort of lack of communication that I'd had with my parents at younger ages and the types of things that were talked about and the types of things that we all didn't talk about. Um, you know, the, way, the ways that we resolved conflict or failed to, you know, I sort of was thinking about all the ways I wanted to do those things differently. Um, and, and also just the kinds of the kinds of things and the kinds of people that I wanted to expose her to, like what kind of community I wanted her to come up into. Mm. So at what point did you feel like I'm a dad now, like you earned your dad stripes, you know? Cause for me, I, I tell the story a lot. If it became real for me when I had to go and buy a winter coat for my son and I had, and I said it out loud to someone, I said, I have to go get a coat for my son. And I hadn't said it out loud to anyone before because I'd been home with him for a couple of weeks. Uh, what, what, what passed for paternity leave back then <laughs> in 2002. So it just kind of cemented it for me like, oh shit, I'm responsible for somebody's life right now. Like yeah. I'm a father, I'm somebody's dad. Um, the yeah. second time might've been when someone called me Mr. Barrow referring to me, one of my, one of my friends, my, my um, kids classmates calling me Mr. Barrow. I'm like, oh my God, I'm, I'm, I'm Mr. Barrow now. When did you have that moment? Oh man, that's an interesting question. Um, I used to, I used to, I used to take my daughter as an infant out a lot in the mornings. I would like put her in the stroller and go to my favorite cafe, my friend's coffee shop and like post up. And, you know, there's something I think about the public, not the performance exactly, but the public manifestation of fatherhood, other people seeing you father kind of brings it home in a way and makes it realer. You're like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a dude out in the world with a little baby and nobody else is responsible. It's just me. I'm on, you know, um, it's interesting too. Cause I think fathers, you know, we're often still like the second class citizens of the parenting world. So like <laughs> in a funny way, one of the, one of the things that made me feel competent as a parent was the amount of disdain that I felt for people who were giving me all types of credit for like being out here with a kid, you know, like people right. say to five, especially, I mean, this was like 14 years ago, so maybe more than the now, but like right. people would, 
people would be like in awe that you were like parenting. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, I'm not and, like, babysitting. This is my child. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Oh, oh, are you babysitting? Like, nah, motherfucker, this is my kid. I'm not babysitting. <laughs> um, but or people would literally just walk up to you, like some middle-aged white lady would walk up to me and be like, Where's mom? <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Like, who's mom? My mom? Like, right, right, right. right. Like, you I'm know, you want, you know, like, yeah. Or people, but also on the flip side, people also say shit to a father that they would never say to a mother. Mm. They'll be like, that child needs a coat. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, does she know? Like, um, yeah, I think some of those moments. Um, but you know, also seeing. I mean, this sounds dumb maybe or obvious, but like seeing the ways in which you are molding that little child, that little life, seeing how quickly they adopt and adapt to your habits, your teachings, the things upon which you were impressing them, you know, like whether it's something like musical taste, you know, um, the fact that by the time she was six or eight months old, my daughter was like expressing a musical preference mm. for one of the choices that I had put in front of her. And I was very deliberate with Vivian, my oldest. I had seen people make the mistake of like playing their kids a bunch of kid music. Mm -hmm. And then the kid likes the kid music and suddenly all you're listening to is kid music. And you're like, <laughs> now so you're I was like, okay, I get it. Clearly anything you play for like a one-year-old might become her favorite song. Yes. So you better only play her shit that you will be comfortable listening to 50 times a day. So I, I kept, I kept her like musical menu, very, you know, very deliberately focused on like music I wanted to listen to. Um, and it worked, you know, like I remember a ve one very proud moment was we used to listen to this. Um, I listened to a lot of reggae so like we were listening to Mad Sister Nancy when she was a year old, dancing around to Bomb Bomb and stuff. Right. And there's a um, there's a Brigadier Jerry song. Brigadier Jerry being one of like the great DJs, also happens to be Sister Nancy's older brother. Mm -hmm. Um, but he's got a song. It's like a it's like a sound clash song, right? So he's bigging up his sound system and dissing the others, right? Uh, I listen to sound clash and sound boy tunes all fucking day sometimes uh, uh, is one of my lanes. And he says in the song, he's like, you know, Ja Love Music Sound is the number one sound, all other sounds, them a Mickey Mouse. And I was very proud that my one and a half year old only knew Mickey Mouse as a diss. <laughs> you know, Mickey Mouse in her mind was not like a, a cartoon, you know, legendary cartoon figure. Right. It was it was a way to say that this sound system is bullshit. <laughs> I was is like, I'm, the I'm one that is she the one that was sunning random kids at a Bob Marley play? Oh shit, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> Did I talk about that somewhere? 20, 2015. My daughter is sunning random kids at this Bob Marley play. I'm not talking about Bob. I'm talking about Damien. You never heard, know what I mean? <laughs> yes. 2015. <laughs> oh shit! Yeah, 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 yeah. There was a there. There was like a theatrical production of a, a. They adapted like Three Little Birds into a book and then a play or something like that. And we took it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the time, we were listening to the to the um to the Nas and Damian Marley record a lot. Mm. And Viv was like mad disappointed. 
that the play was was focused on like Bob Marley songs, not on like Welcome to Jam Rock and <laughs> and Now <Nah> Mean. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Oh, is that her lane now? Is that her music lane? Is that what she's into? What is she what is she into? You know, I mean, my 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 musical journey with Viv has been an interesting one and a, a fairly well documented one as mm -hmm. well because um you know, it's funny. I mean, again, Viv's Viv's life is wild. I'm like, "Fam, do you do you know how fresh your life is?" <laughs> you can stop complaining like me and you went on this American life to talk about your rap career. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. um, Viv, um, for a long time, yeah, Viv and I listened to what I wanted her to listen to. Mm -hmm. So that was, you know, it was, it was a lot of hip hop. It was reggae, it was funk and soul and all kinds of things. And she dug all of it. And it was like her musical basis. Mm -hmm. And she also was rhyming, um, which is a whole other story, but like Viv, um, I kind of just took for granted what she could do because, you know, everybody I know can rhyme. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, like, so it was, it was, it was kind of like nothing to me that mm -hmm. my daughter, when she was five and six, mm -hmm. could like perform all of scenario from front to back, mm -hmm. or, or or do Drez's third verse on, um, you know, the choice is yours or whatever. That was just regular. Like, of course she can. Like, why the fuck wouldn't she be able to? Right. But it slowly began to dawn on me that like she had pocket, she had some verbal dexterity. I remember hanging out with J period when Viv was like six, DJ J period, mixtape, King J period. Yes. And I was like, Viv, yo, Viv, do um do the choice is yours. And she like did the whole verse. And he was like, wait, 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 do it again. And he recorded it and sent it to Drez. Wow. And like 20 minutes later, Drez wrote back, was like, oh my God, that was dope. And I'm like, Viv, do you understand what's happening here? And she's like, what the fuck does she you know? care? She's like, you know, but um, yeah, like she started, we started messing around and recording songs. Um, mm -hmm. A friend of mine had a PBS show about insects, needed a theme song. So like one of my other friends, you know, wrote, wrote a beat and I wrote a verse for Viv and she was six. And my man was like, she's not gonna be able to like, this is tricky, it's fast, it's intricate. She's not gonna be able to do that. And I was like, watch. Mm. Um, and she fucking knocked it out. And then it became a ritual that every summer, this friend of mine would come through with beats and I would write shit and Viv would record it. And then Viv began to write a little bit. So for a while, she was really like recording songs under the name The Jazz Wolf, which she just made up when she was five. Um, <laughs> And it was super fun and it was a way for us to bond and we would write songs together and we would talk about different aspects of, of how you did it and the craft and you know um and then as she got older she began to kind of assert her own taste mm -hmm. and she didn't want to be my puppet anymore and she didn't necessarily want to listen you know she started exploring she was like uh i'm trying to listen to this pop station over here i'm trying to listen to this you know taylor swift album I'm trying to listen to this Billie Eilish album. I'm trying to listen to like some random ass British mumble mouth rapper that I found on Spotify, you know, like, right. and for a while there was a bit of a tension because I was a little bit too quick to shut her down and be like, you know, this shit is hot garbage, right? And she'd be like, why are you such an asshole? And I'd be like, I'm sorry, you're right. I'm being an asshole. And I'd like try to dial it back. Um, 
And she's been, you know, she started playing the harp. She started writing her own songs and singing, and she's got a lovely voice. Um, and now I'm kind of like letting her do her own thing and record her own music. I did hire my friend, my previously mentioned friend, Martine Perna, who founded Antibalas. He's taught her how to make beats on GarageBand so that she can like do it all herself. So she's not waiting for somebody, particularly some dude, as is often the case, to like give her a beat. So she's kind of doing that. And, you know, we still talk about music all the time. She still, it's funny, she has nostalgia for all of the music she grew up listening to. So, you know, my, my 12 year old, 13 year old daughter in 2021 has all this nostalgia for like Stetsasonic records, you know? <laughs> and it's also, and still has that. yeah. And like, you know, and, and, and when kids in her class are like, yeah, I'm into hip hop. She's like, are you though? She's like, them. she's like, she's like, you know, you ever heard of Stetsasonic? Do you know who the Jungle Brothers are? You know? Right. Um, but we've also come to an interesting point where I'm I'm swallowing my impulse to tell her that a lot of this shit is garbage. Mm -hmm. And instead, we've started playing a game where like she'll play me a song. Mm -hmm. And 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 you know, instead of judging it, I'll try to ask her what it is that she likes about it. And then we'll try to trace its lineage backwards. So like, you know, she likes this this dude named Youngblood, who's like some British singer rapper dude you can tell by the look on my face that i <laughs> really uh appreciate his artistry we need to retire young from because i there's too many yeah. young right now we need to retire yeah, we need to yeah. absolutely but you know well but i'll be like okay cool this like let's talk about the seeds of this dude's style like where is he getting this from and what's he sampling and like let's you know let's take it to the lab and pull out some records and you know but yeah, I mean, I'm trying to be a little less overbearing. I'm trying to be like, oh yeah, you like Hamilton? Well, if you like Hamilton, if you think that's lyrically dexterous, listen to this big pun record. And she's like, enough already, enough. You know? <laughs> like, try to find some balance, you know? So did she inspire Go the Fuck to Sleep? Yeah, yeah. She was, uh, was a, a non-sleeping ass two and a half year old when I wrote it. <laughs> and uh <laughs> it came out around the time she was three and a half okay and yeah that was her she was she's on the front page of the book yeah okay so tell me about that journey this amazing triple platinum <laughs> like what like t walk me through when you decided that moment so you know i need to write a book about trying to get this baby to sleep yeah um I was um, I was teaching in in Ann Arbor, Michigan, for like a week in the summer, and I was hanging out with my co-teachers, a bunch of poets, um, Patricia Smith among them, and some other people, and we were all just kicking it. And I made a joke in the room about how I was going to write a children's book called "Go the Fuck to Sleep," and it kind of immediately dawned on me what that book might actually be. Um, how how I might go about sort of remixing the traditional children's board book with all its like tropes, all of its cutesy animals and it's like A, B, C, B rhyme scheme right. and sort of intersperse like a real parental monologue with that um, and how that might be kind of a funny thing to do. So I like went home a week later and did it. Um, and again, you know, like 
I didn't expect anything to happen. I didn't, I wasn't like, this book is going to conquer the world. I wasn't even like, I'm going to publish this book. I was like, this might just be for like me and my friends and like a few like shitty cynical parents. But, you know, I like read it to some family and got a good response. So I wrote it a little more of it. Um, at some point, it seemed viable enough that I called my boy Ricardo, former elementary uh, art designer, art editor, and was like, do you know, asked him if he would do a couple illustrations so we could send it to a publisher. Um, you know, the whole thing took me like an hour to write, maybe. I mean, again, coming out of some hip hop shit, like, I've been writing rhymes since I was 11. Like, the, the, the craft of finding words that rhyme is like instinctual to me. I grew up doing it. Um, so it was like a fun little aside. It was light work in the midst of whatever else I was doing, writing novels. Um, we sent it, I sent it to my agent. He was like, I can't sell this. You know, you're bugging basically. I was like, okay. Um, I sent it to my friend, Johnny Temple, who is the publisher of Akashic Books in Brooklyn, my former neighbor in Fort Greene, um, somebody I'd worked with a little bit. I'd edited an anthology for Akashic. I, I knew that Johnny had a couple young kids who didn't sleep. Um, and, you know, I thought if anybody was going to take a chance on it, it might be him. You know, and they're a little independent house who I really respected, who did dope books. But, you know, like Akashic's motto is reverse gentrification of the literary world. I, so like, you know, they're not like a, they're not like a commercial powerhouse exactly. And I sent it to Johnny and Johnny was like, this shit is funny. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, it's funny. He's like, I'm not going to publish it. And I was like, nah, nah. I mean, I, you know, I thought you'd get a kick out of it, but it kind of like stayed around. And he like read it to his wife and his wife was like, sent him an email, which he sent to me. She was like, I'm dying. You have to publish this. <laughs> and we're both like, oh yeah, ha ha. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. But it, again, it sort of, you know, over the course of a couple of months, we kept talking about it. He kept showing it to people. I kept showing it to people. He did some event with Jonathan Lethem. Lethem was like, yo, this is hilarious. Um, you know, so it sort of kept building. We took it, he took it to his local bookstore, Greenlight Books in Brooklyn to kind of see what they thought and like where they'd even stock it. Cause like, you know, we, we didn't know where, like book, obscene fake children's books didn't exist. So we didn't right. know where the fuck that would go. Right. And they were like, yeah, we put this in the parenting section. And I think me and Johnny maybe low-key didn't know there was a parenting section. <laughs> right. Like, oh my God. So, you know, so eventually we like we decided to pull the trigger and publish it. Um, and you know, I was just like tickled that it was being published. Like that was just hilarious to me. Like to me, it was a flex just that I got to publish like a ridiculous book like that. Right. right. Um, and then a, about six months before it was going to be published, I did a, a reading of it at a museum in Philly. I was living in Philly at the time, teaching at Rutgers Camden, mm-hmm. and it was two days after Viv's third birthday, and it was like I had agreed to give like a 10-minute performance as part of an evening of like 10-minute performances. They booked way too many of them, so the shit just dragged on and on and on. I'm sitting there for like four hours, like they got me going last and shit. I'm like, this is either an honor or an insult. I can't tell which. I had just gotten a PDF of the book. So I was able to show the images behind me. And, you know, people like went a little bit bananas for it. It went over really well. 
I didn't think much of it. I was like, okay, that bodes well. Six months from now, maybe this will sell when it comes out. Um, but by the time I woke up the next morning, the book, which was up for pre-order on Amazon, right. was right. like ranked 125th on, on Amazon, like in all books. And yo, like I had written three literary novels at this point. I don't think any of them was ever like ranked in, a, in, in the four digits, much less the three digits. Right. And by the end of the week, the book hit number one on Amazon. Mm -hmm. Again, the book does not exist yet. It's six months out from even being available. Yeah. Um, but it just stays there at number one. And there's all this buzz and we start to get all this media attention. And I'm like, you know, stifling my urge to participate because they're like, yo, zip it. Like, don't say shit. Like, we're going to, you know, you're now in a position where like somebody is going to want the first interview with you about this. So like, shush. Right. And all this crazy shit is happening. We're frantically rushing the book forward so we can get it out four months earlier than it was going to be out in time for like Father's Day. Mm -hmm. And it's still just sitting at number one on Amazon. And then a PDF of the book starts leaking. And all these people just get the whole book in their inbox for free. And we're like, oh, shit, it's a wrap. Nobody's going to buy it, which is wrong. Because like, you can't show up at a baby shower with like a stapled <laughs> together, printed out PDF of a book and be like, here you go. Right. Um, so shit is just bananas. And we get it out in time for Father's Day all the big publishing houses try to buy it away from Akashic, like come in and swoop it up on some big bank, take little bank shit. Right. We say no to that. Um, but it's a very fraught situation. Cause like, we don't know if this has any legs for all we know, this is our one shot and we could get paid out right now. Mm. When we say no, they start trying to backdoor him and calling my agent and telling me to break my contract and all kinds of crazy shit. Wow. Sleazy shit. Mm. Um, and yeah. And then the book comes out. Sam Jackson does the audio book um, and we just kind of, we keep rolling and it's, it's number one on Amazon and it's number one on the New York times list. And it just kind of, you know, we, we, we got enough rocket fuel that we kind of like made it into orbit, you know, and, and, and the book kind of just now continues to orbit the planet. <laughs> I fucked with it heavy because around that same time I was at the urban daily and I had this thing I was doing called Gangsta's Fairy Tale, where I was getting rappers to read children's books. Right. And right around then, I'd gotten fame from MOP to read Goodnight Moon. I remember so, that. Yeah, <laughs> I remember that. So when I saw this, I'm like, Samuel Jackson reading Go to Fuck to Sleep. This is fucking amazing. This is perfect. You know, because at the time, I'm a dad, and I'm trying to find ways to meld, like, my hip-hop existence with my parenting. And, and even though, it, you know, it was, like you said, you were rhyming, there was a very hip-hop spirit to the book so i was like this is perfect this is amazing then you follow that up with fuck now there are two of you <laughs> oh no you didn't yeah you have to fuck you have to fucking eat came first yeah. Yeah, but yeah, then yeah. you had now you now there are two of you fuck now there are two of you so this is when baby number two comes no actually by the time i published that i was um underestimating the number of children i i had three by that time i wrote that book because right. well, you know, the, my, my situation is that I had Vivian mm -hmm. and then much, much later I had my two other kids, right. different, new, different relationship and everything. So, you know, mm -hmm. I have a 13 year old, a four year old and a just turned three year old. So fuck now there are two. I mean, I actually had three, but I had like two under the age of three at, at the time okay. it was published. I'm clear. I'm clear. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It takes somebody 
within hip hop to understand or instinctually know that Go the Fuck to Sleep is like a hip hop book. You know what I mean? Like everybody who knew me, mm-hmm. what was what was cool to them, I think, about the book success was that it was so kind of organic and un uh I was I was it was uncalculated. Like all my friends were like, this is just you talking the same type of shit you've always talked. This is just you and your fucking sense of humor. And you know, the world like agrees with you on this one, you know, but like, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, up until that point, I've been writing, you know, novels that kind of attempted to interrogate race and whiteness and identity and, and, and hip hop and, you know, and paradox and like explore the, 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 the nitty gritty liminal spaces of American life and the contradictions and the ways that, you know, these things sort of function and the insidiousness of hierarchies and stuff, you know, um, and in a way, go the fuck to sleep is, is not a departure from that, right? It's like, in books like Angry Black White Boy, which was like kind of a crazy satire, there's kind of the first book of mine anybody paid attention to, you know, it's like, I'm trying to like, start a conversation about like, whiteness, and using humor to get at shit that nobody wants to talk about or hear about um, and trying to give people permission and space to actually have that conversation. Go the fuck to sleep is exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's just a simpler and possibly more universal topic, um, but it gave parents permission to like laugh about and admit the fact that parenting is hard and you get angry and you get frustrated. Um, it's not that different. Like it's about creating that space. So in a way it's of a piece with all this previous work I was doing just in fewer words and rhyming and not even with really less curse words about the same amount of curse words. So how did it feel? How did it feel to have the two, you got the two younger babies, I should say. Now you got all this experience with your first and then you got one that's pretty much back to back, you know, Uh, what was that? What was going through your mind? You know, now I see you've got one hoisted up (laughs) <laughs> like like a like a football um you're obviously having fun with it but uh what's it like now having them the, the newer kids so to speak um i mean it's interesting it's very it's very different in a way i mean it's very different first of all like you know they don't they don't necessarily uh tell you this in you know fatherhood school but you know th- once you have another kid the first fucking kid goes, doesn't go anywhere. They are still there. <laughs> so like, right, you know, right. and like two kids is a million more kids than one. <laughs> is, a, is 10 million more kids than two kids, you know? Right. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's very different in a lot of ways. Like I'm in a very different place in my life. I'm a lot more stable and steady than I was when Vivian was born. Mm-hmm. These kids are born into also, frankly, just a much better parental relationship. Like, my partner Jamie and I really we really get along we're really a good solid match um unlike me and uh Viv's mom who were like not well matched and you know ended up not staying together um so there's just a there's more ease in the household so that's nice um and you know I think one of I mean one one of the things that I think parents struggle over is 
allowing each other to have their own parenting style and not trying to mesh them, trying to agree on everything, giving each other the space and the autonomy to like parent the way you want to. Right. I didn't really feel like I had that with Vivian. I felt like the way I wanted to parent was not the way that her mother wanted to parent. And we were often at odds about it. It wasn't the most important thing we were at odds about, but it was one of them. And I, and that's not really as a, an issue now. Like we're on the same page with a lot of shit and I'm more relaxed about a lot of shit because it's not my first child. And I know that, you know, like you have all these crazy things in, in mind when you are a first time parent. Like I remember like being actually afraid that like I might accidentally like break my daughter's leg while trying to change her diaper. You know what I mean? Like shit like that, which is not, that's a dumb fear. Sorry, I'm just turning the heat down here. Um, you know, that's like, that's like not a, that's not a relevant thing to be afraid about, but you couldn't have told me that. Um, and I think because I wasn't a first time parent going into the, to the, to the two new kids, my partner, Jamie, who was a first time parent, she got to kind of feed off of my ease. Mm. So she was like, I mean, she's also just kind of like a chill person, but she was like very cool as a first time mother because I was like, yo, don't worry about it. She was like, really? And I was like, I promise, don't worry about it. And she was like, well, all right then, <laughs> you know? Um, that said, it's still a fucking shit show over here. Um, I mean, <laughs> I mean Two kids. Hence, two you kids. have to fucking eat. Fucking <laughs> eat. Fuck now, they're two. You. I mean, you know, just these kids are. They're nineteen months apart. So, like, you know, they love each other. They hate each other. They love each other again. That's every five minutes. <laughs> that cycle repeats every five minutes. Right. Um, you know, in some ways, you know, I feel a little guilty because I don't get to spend as much time with each of them individually the way I did with Viv. Like Viv and I had this certain very special kind of relationship and bond that's continued to this day, partly because we just like, you know, spent so much one-on-one -on -one time. Mm -hmm. um, with Xanthi and Asa, the two little ones, I don't have that luxury as much. I try to carve it out. Jamie tries to carve it out. Mm -hmm. But as often as not, you're just like playing zone defense and trying to like, you know, get through it. Um, you know, we've been very lucky and in the pandemic, especially like we've had childcare, we've had family around, right. You know, we've both been able to like maintain the balance, even though we both work at home. Um, but having two young kids is, is bananas. There's no way around that. And, you know, that's a panorama. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, shit is better. Like, no, you know, nobody's in diapers anymore. That's a that's a real blessing. Um, I'm also a lot older than the first go around, Jerry. Like, goddamn, <laughs> you know, like I took a lot of pride, even though you know, even though I wasn't that young, mm -hmm. I was still like, I was still probably like the youngest father in like Vivian's mm -hmm. nursery school class, or even now her eighth grade class. I I can still like go to her school and be like, you know, you think these dumb thoughts to try to hold on to your, you know, your, your youth. You're like, I could kick all these dudes asses. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know what scenario would require me to go, you know, knuckle up against every father in Vivian's class. But I like thinking that I would like, you know, be able to maintain, you know, um, you know, now, like, 
you know, I go to, I drop, I drop Xanthi off at preschool. I'm like, I don't know. Some of these dudes probably beat the shit out. <laughs> so does James Baldwin help with potty training? <laughs> there's a picture yeah. I'm asking because there's a, it's a cute picture of one of his daughters yeah. on the potty. You know, Baldwin. Not as much as you might think. <laughs> um, yeah, no, Xanthi, Xanthi had this habit of, uh, of always selecting, you'll, you'll forgive the expression, a pooping book whenever she went to the bathroom. So she'd just like go to the shelf and be reading, yeah, be reading some Baldwin or be, for a while she picked the same book every time. And it was this like self-help type book called The Four Levels of Healing. And she'd just be on the, you know, every time she'd be like, yep, four levels of healing. Let me get into this right now. <laughs> like. <laughs> Yeah, Would it work. Was she easy to potty train? Yeah, she was actually. She's she's a, she's been a fairly easy kid. She like it's interesting. She and Viv both kind of like learned to talk early. Were like super articulate and funny mm -hmm. from a very young age. And you know, I was spoiled by that. And then my third kid, Asa, came along. Right. And this is often the case with younger siblings. Xanthi, interestingly. You know, she's the middle kid, but she's like Jamie's first kid and she's like nine years younger than Viv. So she kind of gets to be an older sibling. Like, her, I don't think she's got the traditional sort of like middle sibling stuff, um, at least not then. When, you know, she was like doing all the stuff that an older that a, that a first kid does, like learn how to talk early. Right. Whereas right. your younger kid, like they're like, fuck, do I need to learn to talk for like everybody in this house is already running their mouth. I'm just going to be. So my youngest kid trolled us for like two years she could clearly talk and chose not to and like and i'd be like asa can you say papa and she'd be like no she didn't want to say that word <laughs> she didn't want to say that word she, i'd be like yes you can and she'd be like no can you try no um she's i mean she's hilarious but she's like bre breaking the mold she's a, a whole different kind of kid and uh, you know these, yeah. She she she's the one who's like giving us a run for our money a little bit. She talks now, but only like on her own time. You know what I mean? She's like, okay, I think I'm ready to give you a piece of my mind now. I've got some notes, you know, that I'd like to share. Nice. So speaking of Papa, what was your relationship like with your dad, and what's his relationship like with your daughters? Um, there was a time when my father, whose name is Charlie, um. Mm -hmm was the only person who Asa would let hold her without crying. He was, uh, he was here when she was, when, when she was born. We had both these kids at home. They were both home births, mm -hmm. which is nice because, you know, you have the kid and then you're home. <laughs> <laughs> you're like in your bed. You're like, all right, I'm going to go to sleep now. Um, so my parents like came, they were in town and stuff. Um, and yeah, for the first like three months of her life, if it wasn't Jamie, it was like her grandfather was the only one she would just chill out with. My relationship with my father has always been a, a, a pretty good one. Um, my father's a journalist. Um, he spent 38 years working at the Boston Globe. I grew up in Boston um, in the newsroom. He was the page one editor for much of that time, meaning he laid out the front page and helped to decide what articles went on the front page. Um, and so he's got like an like a like an like an 
incredible, infallible steel trap memory for like the news on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. um, I got a lot of my politics and my interest in politics from him. Like we were a newspaper family. Like mm -hmm. he brought the paper home every day. We read it every day. We talked about the news. We talked about the world. We talked about sports too, but like I looked at the front page every day. I followed elections the same way I followed like the Celtics, you know? Um, and I got a lot of that from him. Um, I'm very lucky in that my whole family is sort of on the same page politically. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I don't have like some crazy right wing uncle, mm -hmm. you know, there's nobody at Thanksgiving who I want to punch in the face unless Jamie's family is there. Um, but like, you know, my dad is, you know, my dad, both my parents are like, are like progressive far left mm. people. And I, I, and, 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 and my grandparents too and stuff. So like, you know, my dad, when I was, when I was like getting my political worldview situated when I was 11, 12, 13, 14, largely due to hip hop, mm. My dad was a real resource for me. Like, you know, I was a white kid in the Boston suburbs listening to hip hop in 88, 89, 90. Um, and it was giving me the language for what I already kind of intuited around me, which was that there was tremendous inequality and tremendous hypocrisy and silence around that inequality, right? That like Boston and Massachusetts, the self image of that city and that state are of being tremendously progressive. Nobody outside Boston looks at Boston that way. Mm. It's segregated. It's this, it's that. I'm not saying it's worse than anywhere else, but the reputation is that it is. Right. Um, and, 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 and brown and black folks are often kind of made invisible in Boston. Like, you know, my buddy Dart Adams talks very well about this, right? About the, the erasure of so much black history in Boston. And it's incredibly rich history. But like, right. you know, you don't, I didn't grow up knowing that. I had to find that out. Um, all of which is to say that like, you know, I had an intuitive sense that shit was fucked up, but it really was Public Enemy and KRS-One and X-Clan and Brand Nubian that gave me the language to understand in what precise ways things were fucked up, right? That was some of the first ways in which I was able to see the subjectivity of whiteness and learn about, you know, recent history, um, much less ancient history. And, you know, the music at that time was talking about Eurocentricity in education and apartheid in South Africa and police brutality. And I was soaking this shit up and being like, okay, I'm understanding what's going on around me in a whole different way. And my father, because he was this journalist, you know, like when Chuck D mentioned Joanne Chesimard um, on, Fear, on, on, on Nation of Millions, right. I could go to my dad and be like, who's Joanne Chesimard? Mm. You know, and it's, it's probably not that many like white kids in Boston in 1988 who could go to their father and be like, who's Joanne Chesimard? And he'd be like, that was Asada Shakur's name before she changed it. You want to read a book about it here? You know, mm -hmm. um, when, you know, when, when KRS-One and Chuck D and others were shouting out Soul on Ice or Kwame Touré, again, my father's like, you want to read Soul on Ice? Here's Soul on Ice, you know? Um, so these books and this history and this sort of 60s radicalism um, was sort of made available to me as I was listening to the music and the not, you know, like my father, I was just telling this story the other night. My father took me to see KRS-One speak at Harvard in 1989, you know, which is a 
probably a story for another day, but that was a fucking mind blowing experience, right? Like, you know, I mean, I was saying earlier when we were talking about elementary, how unusual and inspiring it was to like see Trisha Rose teach a class on hip hop in 95 or Bob O'Mealy sit down with the Jungle Brothers in 97. Now imagine KRS-One at Harvard in 89, right? When the national conversation about hip hop is fucking, you know, the Newsweek rap rage cover and, you know, you know, people steamrolling CDs and censorship efforts and it's not art. And suddenly KRS-One, the guy who we think is at any moment now gonna be able to like levitate and move objects with his mind, he's our fucking hero. Um, he's the vanguard of politics, of lyricism, of everything. And he's fundamentally like, you know, a, a, a revolutionary, a self-described revolution. He's suddenly speaking at Harvard. I'm like, are you kidding me? What's going on right now? Um, and I, you know, like, I'm like, dad, will you? And he's like, yeah, come on, let's go. So, you know, like, so. so my, better than me. my dad hated rap music. <laughs> you fared way better than I did. Yeah. I mean, they weren't. They didn't like it, I don't think, but mm. they didn't, it wasn't, the, they didn't view it as the thing that was corrupting me. They didn't bat an eyelash when, when I, you know, when, when I, you know, I, I would try to play them shit. I, they were like, yeah, this is okay. I mean, but like, it didn't bother them that my, that because of hip hop in the community, communities I was moving in, that suddenly most of my friends were like significantly older or that most of my friends were suddenly black. That was, they weren't bothered by that. I was doing other shit that was much more problematic for them. Um, so I was very like lucky in that regard, you know? Um, you know, so yeah, my relationship with my dad um, was, you know, like there are ways that could have been better. My relationship with my mom was tricky. My dad, you know, didn't intervene to, to take my side as much as I would, would have wanted him to. Mm you know, my adolescence was was real rocky in general in terms of my parents, as a lot of kids are, because I was just like, in retrospect, largely because I was fucking wilding out, you know what I mean? Like, I was doing every single thing that I hope Vivian does not. Um, but, you know, through it all, I think I was able to keep some lines of communication open with my dad. There was always love, there was always respect, um, you know, and it continues. And, you know, my, and my dad and both my parents have been really, you know, incredibly like supportive of all of my work, um, you know. And, and, and I took it for granted in a lot of ways. Like it wasn't until I got to grad school that I realized that, you know, like like I had friends who would like show up at my apartment in tears because they'd had yet another call with their father who was like, why the fuck are you doing an MFA in fiction writing? that's going to get you nowhere. Why don't you go to law school? The yeah. fuck is wrong with you? Right. And I was, and, you know, and, and only when I saw that was I like, you know, sometimes they told me to like go to sleep when I was up late writing on the family computer, but they never batted an eye when I was like, I want to be a writer, which I was declaring from the time I was like, you know, five or something. Right. But you right. know, words are like the family stock and trade. My dad was an editor. My mom was a reporter for a while. My grandmother was a poet. Nobody batted an eyelash. And in retrospect, that level of support is incredible. Um, you know, they read all my shit, no matter how crazy it is, you know, like. <laughs> no, that's dope. Um, so I guess my, my, I wanted to close with a thought for your question of what does it mean to be a hip hop dad for you? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think it means a lot of things for me. I mean, you know, on one level, to me, um, at its very heart, I think there are a lot of artistic and aesthetic and sort of political principles that you, that undergird hip hop and unite all of its different art forms. And there's a mind state there um, that's important to me to pass along. And there's a lot of elements to it. I mean, I think that hip hop is based on a kind of very rigorous democracy, a very rigorous, with a small D. There's, a, there's an intellectual democracy to the way hip hop borrows and stitches together. You know, hip hop is, is based in collage in a lot of ways, um, whether that's sampling or cutting up breaks or the way that graffiti writers approach color and form and the borrowing of characters and letter forms and stitching it all together. Um, whether it's the way that the dance evolved and incorporates everything from James Brown moves to Capoeira moves to different things, you know, Kung Fu shit, just everything that was visually and kinetically available got folded into the dance, right. but not just folded in. The way that hip hop does this shit is we very rigorously select just what is fly and use that and discard the rest. And the democracy part comes from not privileging one source over another. Like, it doesn't matter where the shit originated. If it's fly, we'll use it. Um, you know, if you find some dope drums on the Mickey Mouse Club record, and there are some drums on the Mickey Mouse Club record, you use them. You're not shout like, no, I can't use this. Because of <laughs> What's that? Is it shout out to Prince Paul? Yeah, exactly. Right. right. Like, you're not like, no, I, I can't touch this record because it's corny. Nah, like, if anything, that may And you also don't use some lackluster shit off a James Brown record just because James Brown is dope. You use what you find to be useful and you discard the rest. And I think if you take that principle and apply it more broadly to the world, I'm interested in conveying and passing on that sense of democratic thinking and open-mindedness to my children. I want them to look at the entire array of what's before them and feel that they can draw on and draw inspiration from and make art from everything around them. I think that's one important element of hip hop that I want to apply to parenthood. Um, to me, hip hop is intrinsically about the pursuit of justice also, um, about amplifying voices that have not had a megaphone. It's about creating community from the margins. It's about speaking truth to power. It's about taking shit over when the, when, when the world doesn't provide spaces for you, it's about seizing and inventing those spaces. Um, you know, to me, the, 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 the best example of that is the way that the graffiti movement evolved in New York City, right? Mm -hmm. um, you had a generation of kids who wanted to be seen, wanted to be known, wanted fame of a certain kind, wanted to be artistic. And they figured out that if they took over the trains, their art would be seen by 5 million people a day. And nothing the city did to outsmart them and discourage them worked. In fact, most of it backfired, right? The city decides that, you know, writers will be demoralized if they buff all the work at once and just eradicate all of graffiti. Nah, 
actually what you just did is solve the problem of artistic overcrowding on the trains and brought a whole generation of writers back out of retirement because now there's space for them to write without right. going over somebody and, and creating beef. Right. They, they thought that, you know, if they made writers clean the work off the trains themselves, they get discouraged and give up. Nah, you just found a way for writers to network that they never would have before. Suddenly, I'm some writer from the Bronx buffing my piece and I'm sitting next to somebody from Queens and we're talking about keys to different train yards. You know, it's like, it was, it was, it's that level to me, that, that conception of kind of youthful or not so youthful, unruly, artistic, unconfinable energy that speaks to hip hop at its best. And, you know, no matter what form it takes up, whether it's the pen or the spray can or, you know, the turntable and the mixer, like all of those things are hardwired into that, you know, and those of us who came up with those aesthetics have taken it to other places, to fiction, to playwriting, to education, to activism. You know, I'm, I'm writing political ads for the Biden campaign, for the New Georgia project, mm -hmm. and it's all hip hop shit. It's all strategies, messaging that I learned just from being in the mix in that way. My improvisational skills, my ability to you know convey a message with alacrity and speed without losing anything like all of this shit is just it's light work because hip-hop made it light work you know what i mean hip-hop has reinvigorated so many art forms and so many strategic cultural practices and nobody even knows it unless you can see it unless you have the cheat code and came up in it and you're like i bet that shit comes from somebody who knows how to do all this other shit, you know? So I guess I want, I want to pass all of that down to my kids as much as possible. Word. Well, thank you so much, Adam. This has been great. I, I feel like I, I've, I've scratched the surface of what I wanted to get to, but I unfortunately have some other commitments that I'm sure you have to <laughs> um, I could, you. Yeah, thank you, man. I could, I could, hopefully maybe we'll get to do a part two. Um, you know, God, God willing, man. But this has been Fathers Who Bother with the great, great Adam Mansback. And you will see check us out on YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud, all the good, all the good places where you catch your podcast. Any any last thing you want to plug before you go? Um, yeah, the go the fuck to sleep cannabis line dropping in two weeks. We got uh CBD tinctures. We got some THC products to follow, but, you know, um, for adults who hate bedtime. Perfect. And <laughs> <laughs> me some. I'll definitely try it out. <laughs> I got you. All right. Thanks a lot, Adam. All right. Thanks, Jerry. Good to see you, man. Same. All right.